how do you possibly narrow the word love down to one sermon? If anybody knows anything about the Bible, one of the first things they often point to is the emphasis that the Scriptures have nearly from beginning to end on love. It is easily one of the most overarching themes of all the Bible. And so for the next 11 and a half hours, we'll be talking about love. That wasn't a joke. Now, to narrow the Bible's teaching on love to one sermon, to 25 to 30 minutes, I have to tell you, when we were laying out these one-word lessons for this year, Tyler and I were just simply looking at the calendar and making sure we knew when, when I would maybe be out of town or something and making sure who had which word, just going through the book. And I have to tell you, I was excited. Love, that's going to be the easiest lesson of the year. I mean, there's a million things you could say, and that's the problem. Oh, this has been a challenge. I was thrilled when I saw that I was speaking on a night where the one word was love. But the longer I studied, the more I thought, the more I prayed. In all honesty, the more I was filled with fear. Because narrowing down the word to one sermon is an overwhelming task. We live in a time when the word love is thrown around with basically little meaning. I mean, we, we love everything. We, we love ice cream. We, we love TV shows. We love our spouse. We love God. We love all sorts of things. And to truly show what we mean then, we have to use all kinds of qualifiers and verbiage you know, to hope, hopefully show that we love our spouse at least a little bit more than we love ice cream. We have to kind of show the difference in those things, but we just seem to love everything. And we also live in a time where the concept of love has basically been reduced to how you feel about someone or about something. It's often nothing more than an attraction. Some even suggest that it's nothing more than a chemical reaction. If something makes you you feel good, well, then you love it. And we deal with that very wide use of the word, and it can be so frustrating for us because deep down, I think we all know that love should be so much more than just an attraction or just how we feel about something. And so tonight, I want to do two things. The first, briefly, and the other is we'll spend most of our time. First, I want us to think for a few moments and do just a small, short word study with you. We're going to think about the words, when you see the word love, especially in the New Testament, what are we actually reading? And then having established that, we want to think about three facts about agape love that are true, obviously, but stand in contrast to the way we so often think of love in our society. First, let's think about the words we see. When we see the word love in our New Testament, what are we reading? In fact, we're reading more than one word. The New Testament, of course, was written in Greek, and at the time of Jesus and the apostles, there were several different words that have all come to us in English as, as the word love, two of which are found in the New Testament. The first is the word phileo. It's the word we get words like philanthropy from. You've heard it mentioned before, this is friendship love. And that's not a bad definition, but it doesn't quite get to the fullness of it because there again, friendship means so many things to so many people. We might better translate this word really as loyalty. It's a type of love that that shows loyalty towards someone. It's sometimes described as family love because a family holds together. That word is found 25 times in the New Testament. And I've sometimes heard it said it's not as strong of a love as the other kind of love we're going to think about. And that that may be true to a point, but it is interesting that at least once 
Phileo is used to describe the love between God the Father and God the Son. That sounds like pretty strong love to me. But it's the idea of loyalty. But it's the other word we're going to think about more tonight. We mentioned the sermon this morning. We're going to mention it for all of our time tonight. It's the word agape, or really it's agapao, but we often hear agape. And the word carries with it the idea of the love in a direction of another person. It's loving someone for his or her own good. It's benevolent love, as I saw it translated recently. And the commentator who gave that description then added the words you have on the screens before you. They wrote, Its benevolence, however, is not shown by doing what the person loved desires, but what the one who loves deems as needed by the one who is loved. For example, we might not think on the surface that God sending His Son was what we needed, at least when we first think about it. But why did he do that? We studied that this morning, did we not? For God so agape He so loved the world. It wasn't that what we necessarily would think we needed in the moment, or at least at first. But God did what was best. That's agape. I sometimes define the word agape as others-centered, self-sacrificial love. It puts the other person's needs before my own and sees that I try to meet those needs as best as I possibly can. And the passages we're going to study tonight all contain forms of that word, that self-sacrificial love. What does that really look like? What am I thinking with you about tonight? Are three facts about this kind of love that we hopefully all know are true, but that stand in contrast to thinking that love is just a feeling or just an attraction or something along those lines. They're things that make it really difficult to understand and to live out this agape love. For example, number one, We need to remember that love, this kind of love, is a choice. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mentioned this morning we were going to go there tonight, and here's where we will. When we can see that those qualities listed in that chapter we sometimes call the the love chapter, and quite often the description of love that's found in the middle of that chapter is read at a wedding ceremony when my last grandparent who was living passed away, a grandmother, 1 Corinthians 13 was actually read as her obituary at the service to honor her life of love. Now, I know most of us have read or at least heard this list found in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13 so often, but I don't want us to dwell tonight on each individual thing found in the description. Instead, we're going to read it and then make one observation. Notice the description found in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Each time, by the way, the word love is there as a form of the word agape. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with or in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, whether you're looking at your Bible or whether you're looking at the screens, I want you to let your eyes rest on any one of those things you would like. I'm not even going to tell you which. It doesn't make any difference. Let your eyes rest on any one of those descriptions, and you're going to see one thing that is true. Whichever one, whatever one your eyes are looking at of all those descriptions, it takes a choice to make it true. When someone has done something to me, I must choose to be patient. I must choose to be kind, no matter who I am around. When I see something in the news going on in society and we're celebrating things that are wrong, I need to choose 
to avoid rejoicing at wrongdoing or rejoicing at evil and instead rejoicing with the truth. And whatever else you're looking at that list, it's true that it takes a choice for that to live out in our everyday life. You see, this kind of love is not just a feeling. It's a choice. And in fact, it's an active choice. And don't we see that even in God's love for His people? We could go all the way back to the Old Testament if we wanted and see how often God said He loved Old Testament Israel and how He showed that love over and over and over again and how He chose them to be His special people. They didn't earn that place in the world. They were not deserving of it by some uh, human way of, uh, of making themselves known like their wealth or the size of the army or anything like that. They didn't deserve it from any of those things. Instead, God chose Israel. But then throughout the years... They turned from him over and over again, and they were rebellious. And yet God chose to be immensely patient and kind. He loved them enough to send prophets and others to to warn them and to try to help them. He did that because his love is constant. But folks, we don't have to go back to the Old Testament as our only example. Any of us who is a Christian should know that God has chosen to love us as well. Yes, it is His nature to love. We just read the verse and sang the verse. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But yet God still chooses to shower us with more affection and more blessings than we ever could deserve. And He does so despite of ourselves, despite our sins and shortcomings. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul would write, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, literally God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to take the picture farther, just a couple of verses later in verse 10, Paul would say that we our sins made us an enemy with God. And yet God chose to love God chose to act. God chose to to show His patience. And God chose to show His kindness because that's what agape love does. We've got to get past this idea that love is just a feeling. This kind of love is just a feeling. To love the way God the Father and to love the way Christ the Son show us how to love, it's a choice. It's a choice we make. I will choose to be patient and choose to be kind and choose to not be irritable, and choose to not be resentful, choose to not be arrogant, and on and on and on through that beautiful description that Paul gives us in the love chapter. And understand, it's not always going to be an easy decision. But agape love is a choice. In the second place, I would suggest to you that this kind of love exemplifies, it demonstrates. There was a a Frenchman who was talking about his soldiers and his army a few generations ago. And he said about soldiers who fight together, he said, Life has taught us that love does not consist in gazing at each other, but in looking outward together in the same direction. I think that same sentiment really comes from the words of Jesus when he said in John 13 and verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another or for one another. And of course, that word love there is the word agape. 
But notice the point that Jesus is making. There is an example that's seen our love that really no one can miss if it's really there. The word know, people will know that you're my disciple. The word know there means to understand or to perceive. It's a strong word that really means there's just no way to miss that these are disciples of Christ. But how is it seen? It's seen first and foremost in how those disciples treat one another. Do we really agape love each other? Now, does it matter what we teach? Of course it does. We must hold fast to sound doctrine. We must never compromise on matters of of salvation, that plan of salvation, on the matters of what God has prescribed as far as our worship, on matters of how the church is organized and so forth. If God's Word states it, we have no right to waver from it to the right or to the left, even by an inch, because God has given us a pattern to follow. But that said... Is anybody really going to care if we worship without the instrument or if we teach Acts 2.38 correctly and understand what baptism is or if we have elders and deacons, and as, as Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, if we're arguing and fussing and fighting all the time? Is anybody really going to care? Now, are those things important? Yes. But by this will all people know you are my disciples, at least first, if we have love one for another. But I also want you to think for a moment. Notice what Jesus did not say in that verse. He didn't just say it's an absence of conflict. He did not say, all people will know you're my disciples as long as you're not fussing and fighting all the time. And that'd make that verse really easy to follow, or at least sometimes make it easy to follow, right? And make it a whole lot easier for certain. But instead, Jesus made it active. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you are actively showing agape toward one another. You see, he made it far more than just warming a pew and then smiling because, well, I haven't argued with brother and so-and-so today. I haven't had, a, had it out with sister so-and-so today, and so I guess everybody knows we're disciples. I'm not, I'm not fussing and fighting with everybody. This sentence I tried to write a hundred different ways, and it still may not make sense, but I hope it does. People do not notice the bad we do not do anywhere near as much as they notice the selfless right that we actually do. Now, I know it's a weird sentence. I I promise you, I tried to write (laughs) several different ways. But may I say it again? People do not notice the bad we do not do anywhere near as much as they notice the selfless right that we actually do. And see, it's not just showing that kind of selfless love toward just a few favorites who happen to sit near me in, in church or be in my Bible class. That's wonderful. And there's no way that any of us could do every single last possible good work for every other person. No, nobody can do everything. But I, I must show as much love as I can to everyone through prayer, through action, through good attitudes, and on and on. That love exemplifies. People know that we're disciples, if we show agape love, seeing to their ultimate best, all disciples. And something else that stands out from our culture, I would suggest to you also that true love has boundaries. True love has boundaries. Think about that definition we, we shared at the beginning of our time about the word agape. It's not about just meeting the desires of other people. Agape love is about doing what you deem best for the other person. And at times, that means we have to set boundaries and hold to them. You recall, very recently, we looked on a Sunday morning lesson at Jesus' Jesus's teaching about judging from Matthew chapter 7. 
But in illustrating that, we went to the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And remember, the text tells us that Jesus loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, the text tells us. But if you remember, we talked about the fact that Jesus, because of his love, did not then just say, well, you're okay, I I sure love you, and you can just go on living the way you're living because that's totally fine. That's not what Jesus did at all, is it? We might say that Jesus hurt the man's feelings for his own good. He set some boundaries. Really, the boundaries had already been set by the Old Testament law. But he needed to stay within those boundaries in order to be faithful to the law of God. Folks, it's not popular in our our culture, but it's absolutely true. Love is not always acceptance. Love is not always tolerance. The kind of love that we're studying tonight sometimes hurts because it sets boundaries and it holds to those boundaries. But those boundaries are always in place for the betterment of the other person, as best as we can possibly do that. They're, they're not to try to make us feel better. They're not to try to say that I'm on some kind of higher plane than anybody else, and so I'm giving some, some hard and fast rule that puts you down. No, they're there because through thought and through concern and through prayer and ultimately through a study of God's Word, I, I, I think, at least as best I can, this is what's best for the other person And I love that person enough to set a boundary, always for their own good. I think parents understand this, even at the very youngest of ages. Why do parents teach their children not to play in the street or not to talk to strangers? It's not just because they're fearful, that, that plays a part in it. But even that fear grows out of a love for our children. Our children may want to play in the street and think it's it's fun, it's concrete, sounds good to me, right? They don't understand the danger of that. And that may be a silly example, but it proves that all of us know that this is true within ourselves. We take it to other areas of life, and I think we understand it as well. If we have a dear friend or a member of our family who's struggling with alcohol, for example, we might have to put up some very strong boundaries. Maybe they can't stay at our house if they've been drinking. Or if it's a grown child, maybe we won't give them any more money as long as they're continuing that, that struggle. That person, at least at first, probably doesn't understand. They may never understand. They may fuss. They may feud. They may say we don't love them. They may, they may say that this is all mean and you're just saying you're better than I am. But through prayer and thought, we have deemed it best. And so we set a boundary. Not because we're trying to show some moral superiority, but because we love that person enough that even if it hurts, we're going to help. Have you ever thought about the fact that sometimes even letting someone go if you run a business can be a loving act. You ever thought about that? Because if we're keeping someone working at a business that we have and they're not doing their job, we're teaching that laziness and not doing their job is actually okay and it's not okay. You see, these boundaries are there and they hurt, but we love someone enough to set them. Our world says if you love somebody, you just accept them, you just tolerate all they do all the time. And that sounds good. It sounds right in our ears in so many ways because we hear it so often and and it sounds like the right thing to just accept and just love. But if we're following what true agape love means, it's just not the case. We cannot just jump into every situation and try to change every person. But we think and we pray and we seek the wisdom of Scripture and then, yes, we do step in. And we say, this cannot go on. Because I love you, not because I'm trying to harm you, because I love you enough that I want things to be better. 
That's not easy. But we put up boundaries for the other person's good, always seeking reconciliation and doing our best to show grace and forgiveness. I want you to turn back to 1 John chapter 4, the text that David read a few minutes ago. We've been reminded of, of what this word love means, what agape means. And we've, been, we've mentioned some facts, nowhere near all of them. We, we could talk about this for, for hours on end. But I try to think of three things for tonight's lesson that kind of go against what we hear so often in the drumbeat of our culture uh, when we hear the word love. And knowing those things, I want us to read again that text, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. And I want you to notice that each time in that text you see the word love or any form of it, loved or anything else, it is a form of the word agape. And think about those facts about love as you see that word. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God, because God is agape love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now you have those words on the screens before you. Maybe you're looking at your Bible. Did you notice that last statement that John wrote in that text? And think of the facts that we've thought about tonight with love. The only way God's love is perfected in us is if we have the kind of love for one another that is a choice to love. The kind of love that the outside world cannot miss because I'm selflessly doing what I can in the moment for others. And the kind of love that even loves somebody else enough to set boundaries that might hurt their feelings, but in tears they're set because I only want what's best for that other person. A brother, a sister in Christ, a dear family member, a friend. May I simply ask, Has that love been perfected in you? You see, love is far more than a feeling. Oh, there's kinds of love, as we described, that are a feeling, an attraction, a a chemical reaction, or whatever. Those things, we, we know what we mean. We talk about those sorts of things. But agape love is far, far more than just a feeling. In point of fact, it's pretty hard. Because I must choose as God shows with me, to sometimes love the one who's unlovable. I must sometimes choose, as God shows with me, to love one who has turned their back. I must choose, as God shows with me, to sometimes love an enemy. But I also must choose, as God shows me, to always be seeking reconciliation. Do you have that kind of love? Does it characterize your life as best as possible? None of us will ever do it perfectly. But aren't you thankful you have a Father who does? He does not do love. He is love. And aren't you thankful 
that he loved you enough as we studied this morning to send his son so that if you'll believe, you can have everlasting life. Tonight, have you responded to that? Have you shown God the kind of love, returned the kind of love to him as best you can that he has shown to you? We do that by simply giving our lives to him and making him our all in all. Tonight, if you've never become a Christian, when a person is baptized, in many ways what they're saying is simply, God, I love you. I love you enough to do what you say. If you've never done that, why would you wait? Brother or sister in Christ, has, has, has that kind of love grown cold? And you need now to have those embers burning again. The kind of love for brothers and sisters and for a lost and dying world that your Father in heaven showed to you. Do you need to respond tonight? May we assist you. And if you'll pardon me saying so, we sure would love to. As together we stand and as we sing.